Good morning, Calvary Bible Church. Glad you're here. If you're worshiping with us at Classic Calvary this morning, we're happy to have you with us. If you have a Bible, let's open together to the New Testament book of Acts. We're going to finish chapter 4 this morning and launch out into chapter 5. And we're going to talk about your favorite subject to hear about in church, generous giving. Or else. <clears throat> this is a story that um, every church has um, beautiful things that happen in the life of its ministry and challenging things. There's no perfect church, would you agree? And every church faces threats, some from outside and some from inside. We've already seen an outside threat that came to the apostles earlier in our study when. They were arrested and put into prison uh, and told not to preach about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Today, we're going to look at threats that occurred within the church that threatened to compromise its life. Now, the mission of the church is to make Jesus Christ. Why we're here. It's a threat. It's a threat from within. I'm not sure what happened there, but um, what was I saying? I was saying that the, the mission of the church is to proclaim Christ. And all the other things that are attached to the work of the church um, should contribute to that end. The problem what happens with church life, that the longer a church exists, the danger is more attention is focused on sustaining the church than promoting the mission of the church. It can become too internally focused that it stops doing its real mission. The beautiful picture of a church is that there is this rhythm of caring for the members of the church in a beautiful way while advancing the preaching of the gospel to people who are not yet a part of the church. Any church that turns in on itself and only focuses on its own welfare, will die. But the church that is committed to doing the work that Jesus called it to do, go into all the world, preach the gospel, that, that's the church that Christ is building. And that's the church we want to be a part of, knowing that we're always going to face certain threats that come against our life as a community of believers. We'll see them today. But first, I want you to see a beautiful picture of a generous man. To do that, we're going to read um, Acts chapter 4 and verses 32 to the end of the chapter. It says there that now when the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on them. And there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as 
any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold the field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, I ask that as we look at these words of Scripture, you, you will speak to us. Your Holy Spirit will be present to illumine the words that you have recorded to enter into our hearts and find a receptive soil in which the truth of God will grow up in us and uh, bring forth fruit of righteousness for you and of uh, a worthy response in our hearts to these very things. Please push back every resistance we would have to hearing from your voice and let us be the listeners who not only hear the word of God but do it with joy. In Jesus' name we all pray. Amen. Now verse 32 says, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. One heart and one soul. It was a large group, and now we're no longer even saying anything about the size of the church. We've gone from 120 to 3,000 to 5,000, and now it's just a multitude. Chapter 4, verse 32, simply says, the large number of people were together, and they had all one heart. They were beautifully united, and oneness and unity in the church was one of the things they were really committed to keeping. And no one ever said of the things that belong to him, this is mine. Now suddenly you have a biblical affirmation of possession ownership. Do you own the things you own? It's an interesting commentary that Luke just says, everybody in the community said, all that I have, it's really not mine. Man, that changes everything. Does that sound like America? You know, it really doesn't. There's a little drift from this, but the unity of the fellowship of the church, of all this multitude of new believers who are following him, had a mindset about their very possessions, and there was a preoccupation with oneness and unity and the ministry that was necessary for that to occur. The next verse which is lodged between two verses that say similar things, is what I was speaking about earlier. The next verse, verse 33, is really the mission of the church. And great power, with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, they were doing the very thing that in the last chapter they were prohibited from doing by those in authority in their town. You are not to preach the name of Jesus. And here, they are doing the very thing that they were forbidden to do, preach about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We cannot help but speak about these things which we have seen and heard, they said. And so they're doing it. Now you would think if there was a big collection of people that they might become preoccupied with their own selves. But the apostles were sure that the one thing that they didn't get preoccupied about was taking care of their own needs only. But they were also preaching this message to people who needed to hear it. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ, by the way, was an offensive message, particularly to those in this 
uh, Sanhedrin, those leaders and the Sadducees who were there, um, were offended by the idea that Jesus Christ would be the Messiah, that he would die, and that he would be buried, and that he would rise again. And they were okay with that being an offensive message. Can I say that again? They were okay with that being an offensive message. And we're going to have to be okay that neither is there salvation in any other name under heaven given among men, whereby you must be saved except the crucified, buried, and risen Christ. And they kept preaching it. And great grace was on all of them. I like that statement. It's just a statement that God's favor was there. I think they had favor with the large majority of the, of, of the population, though certainly not of all the leaders, but there was a grace upon the church because of what was happening. <clears throat> now verse 34 says, There was not a needy person among them. Wow. For as many as were owners of lands or houses brought the proceeds of what was sold. They sold their very own possessions and laid them at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each one as they had need. There was this loving commitment to unity that led to a generous sacrifice on the part of some who had possessions. And their idea was, my possessions are not my own. They really belong to God, so I will put them at God's disposal. And in God's disposal, my possessions will be available to any in the congregation who has need. Does that get you excited? Does it get you nervous? I want you to listen to what happened. Um, There are a lot of things that get mixed up here. And you start reading the book of Acts, and suddenly you can start saying, well, w- did everybody do that? Do you know the answer to that? It's, it's clear that not everyone in the community did that, but as many as had houses that they could sell or land, they did that. Because their view of possessions were to meet the needs of other people, to meet pressing needs. We learn about that throughout the Bible in James chapter 2, verse 15 and 16, we read that if a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the needs that they need for their body, what good is that? Answer? It's not good. It's no good. Or in 1 John 3, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart to him... How does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word and deed only, um, in, in word only, but in deed and truth. We, we love with our actions in this kind of a way. So what they did is they sold their properties and brought the proceeds to the apostles and laid them down at the apostles' feet. I want you to know that I, I read this, and while it was hugely sacrificial on the part of many, um, it falls short of this being a communal commitment to pool all of the resources so everybody had the same amount. This, this selling was seen to be voluntary, as the text will bear out, and it's not a requirement that if you're in the community you have to sell all of your possessions, as some fringe groups will suggest. It's clear that in the rest of the book of Acts, that individuals still owned houses and they became the house churches in which many people met. There's no other instance in which we are recorded in the book of Acts where this occurs, 
but it is the breaking out of a hugely generous spirit in the congregation to do this. You'll notice this phrase, they laid the resources at the apostles' feet. That's spoken three times here. And it seems to me that when um, you're looking at for a pattern, the pattern here is that the resources were brought to the apostles as a way of recognizing their leadership in the local church. And I think it does create a pattern that under the authority of spiritual leaders, um, they were responsible for the use of those resources. It wasn't authoritatively determined by the donor. The donor said, here it is, brought it to the apostles, and the apostles were responsible for administering those who were in need. And the donor just said, here it is. And you give to the Lord, and he will reward you in secret. That's a, a beautiful picture. I love it when that occurs. And it has occurred in the life of our church. And I, I want to just tell our story a little bit as we look at this story from 2,000 years ago in Acts. But about 12 years ago at Calvary Bible Church in 2008, one of the older women in our church came to the elders and she brought a check to us. You remember 2008? It had an eerie little feel like the last week. Those of you who... Uh, some of you are with me. 2008 was a recession. The stock market tanked. People lost jobs. And this dear little woman in our church came and brought a check for $35,000 to the elders and said, there are going to be people in our church who are going to lose their jobs. They're going to need help with a mortgage. They're going to have special bills. And I just, we want you to have that. She and her husband, we want you to have this, and you be sure that anyone in our church has need in the next year, and if you need more, let me know. Man, what's that? There's not a needy person in them. There's like this commitment that if, if I suffer, you suffer, and if you suffer, I suffer, and this community that happened um, in 2008, and, and boy, here we are at this point point in our time. What would happen if something really occurred here in our country with, with this virus? The coronavirus really had an impact on us. How would we respond? What would it be? We, we could be on the verge of this. Maybe you heard the story of a church in Cincinnati this week who raised $46 million to pay off medical bills. Church gave away $46 million to families in Cincinnati to pay for their medical bills. I saw that and I thought, what a joy. How awesome is that? It's just that spirit that says, I know there isn't Christ. And I don't think of my possessions as being my own. And I, I, I want them to be used by God as he wants. I want to repeat, this was not creating a utopian society within the church here. And not everybody liquidated all their assets, but they did it this way. Uh, in order to meet the needs that were pressing in the congregation. Um, so, let's see where I am here. So thus, Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a, a native of Cyprus, sold the field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Son of encouragement. I, I like that. He was generous in the way he encouraged people. 
And when he was generous in his encouragement, he was generous with his resources as well. And he gave them there. Now, that's the good story. And that's, that's given as what was created as the sort of the norm and the pattern to be replicated in all of us, a generous spirit about our possessions. And then chapter 5 happens, and it's really serious, seriously different. So let's go to 5. In chapter 5, but, on the contrary, conversely, but, a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and only brought part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Verse 3, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself a part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, was it not your own? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal to do with it what you wish? Why have you contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Okay, the scene here is that Ananias and his wife Sapphira contrived a deed together that they were going to present themselves as being as extraordinarily generous as Barnabas. Only they had a plan to sort of get a two-for-one, and that was to present as if they were bringing all of their proceeds to lay them at the apostles' feet. But in reality, they had kept some of it for themselves and had a little cash on the side from doing that. And the point of what is unfolded here in these verses by Peter's questioning is, it was yours, right? You didn't have to sell it. I think that prior discussion, did everybody sell it? No. Was everybody obligated to sell? No. It was a voluntary, not a mandatory performance. And so you have Ananias and Sapphira doing something that is an optional thing, but they want to get the credit for doing something that would be seen by all of the church as an extraordinarily generous act. They're the kind of people who want to have their name on the pew. Okay, that's an inside joke if you've been at church for a long time. They want the recognition for what they've done. And then they also want to benefit themselves. So withholding was not wrong. He could have kept some of it and just presented that he gave a portion of it. That's clear. And Jesus said, you know, so what do you think is at stake here? If what fuels the growth of a church is an encouraging generosity, what will destroy the church? And you know, as soon as I say this word, you, you know, this is hypocrisy. And hypocrisy will destroy a church. Would you agree? It's like it's the one thing that somebody who doesn't go to church and looks at Christians and says, oh, they're all just a bunch of... Yeah, there are people who present, but inside it's different. And that is serious to God. In fact, in Matthew chapter 6 on the Sermon on the Mount, it's the way Jesus opened. 
Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus when you give to the needy, don't sound your trumpet before you as the hypocrites in the synagogues do and the streets that they may be praised by others. That's essentially what was happening here. Hypocrisy. Something that is shown on the outside but not really true on the inside. Very convicting. Verse 5 says, When Ananias heard these words, he heard these words, he fell down dead, and he breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. That may be one of the most understated verses in the Bible. And I've, I've thought this week, I... I, I pray in my heart, but I know I, I have a whiff of hypocrisy from time to time. I don't always live up to everything that I know and preach. I know I'm, I, I don't always perfectly carry out the very things I love and teach to you. I was fearful to preach today. Like, because can't you imagine if, if this occurred as normative? We, we, this, so why did this happen? He fell down and breathed his last. There's more, though. And uh, the young men came in and found uh, him dead, and they wrapped him up and carried him out. Verse 7. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Dun, 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 dun. It's, it's, yeah. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. And Peter said, you, how is it that you have agreed to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door. They'll carry you out too. And immediately she fell down and breathed her last. When young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and they buried her beside her husband. Okay, all kidding aside, it, this is weight. And you might say, why? Just for lying? I, I think this was God's stamp of saying, my people who are called by my name follow me and hypocrisy and lying against God will will damn the church ruin it for some reason God was severe here on the inauguration of how generous giving resources the church and he just stamped out hypocrisy from the very beginning. Now, this has not been a normative way God worked when there was sin that someone would be immediately die, but it was not uncommon. You can look at Joshua chapter 7 and see what happened to Achan when he did a similar thing around money and coveted and was drawn away because of his desire for for wealth. It's sort of frightening what happens here. Would you agree? 
And I think what, what, what happens in 2020 for us is do you hear what God is saying about um, transparency and openness and honesty about everything, but here in, in relation to giving, in relation to being a generous person and saying, wow, I, I want to be that kind of a person. Fortunately, we have this Barnabas story where the son of encouragement, who's lavish in the way he gives thanks for other people, is lavish in his giving as well. And I think the pattern of God in his disciples is to create greater and greater generosity. So we should just do a little self-assessment. How are we doing in generosity? As it relates to um, thinking about your resources, thinking about the things that you possess. Can I just repeat? We don't teach at Calvary that giving is obligatory, legislated. We talk about giving that is voluntarily given, that emerges from a heart of thanks. Um, we teach that it's generous and not constrained. We want you to grow in your ability to say, all that I have belongs to God, and when he needs it, I'll give it, knowing that he'll replenish it if I need it because I belong to him. So I also want you to see that generous giving in this context was associated with the advance of the work God wanted to do in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the world. In order for that to occur, it needed resources. What we know about what occurred in Jerusalem, where this is happening, is there was not a needy one among them, but in a few short years, by chapter 11, there were many needy people in Jerusalem, so much so that Paul went to other churches in um, Corinth and Macedonia and said to them, our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem are starving in the famine. Will you take an offering and send it to our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem? And 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 is Paul asking for other churches to give generously, sacrificially, voluntarily, in order to meet the needs that are pressing for the people in Jerusalem. Because God's people get who God is, and we know that he's generous, and so we want to be that way as well. Now, could I ask you a question? Anybody nervous about talking like this? Could I just tell you a couple uh, mechanical things that happen about giving at this church so that you know? Um, the leaders of Calvary, unless somebody comes up and gives a check, as I referred to earlier, don't know what anybody gives at our church. It's confidential, and it's sort of given that only two or three people know, and the leaders and pastors and elders don't know what anyone gives. As well, when we talk about giving here in our church, um, we are accountable for everything that happens, and we don't have any secret budgets that are for certain people within the organization. Everything's printed in the annual budget that happens. And then at the end of the year, all the dollars that are given are accounted for in a report that's given at the end of the year. And we subject ourselves as an organization to an annual audit by an outside organization 
who comes in and does a really thorough job of looking at everything that happens financially within our organization and then puts a stamp of approval on it, which happened two years ago for the first time by an outside organization called the Evangelical Council of Financial Accountability, which is sort of the gold star for auditing of nonprofits, and we were credentialed and, and we hold a certification for that, and we do that every year now where, where we get examined because we want to be above reproach about all this stuff. And all you have to do is look around and see where lots of nonprofits have become pretty profitable and gone astray. And there are a lot of those, and we don't want to be one of those. So we, we just want to say you can give in with, with a sort of a spirit of confidence about that. And I want to encourage you to do just that. The, the way this church goes forward in the ministry is by the generous giving of its members and friends. I told you the story perhaps a couple of years ago where we let another uh, religious organization borrow our facility and they came in and looked around, and this was maybe 15 years ago, and they looked around and said, wow, you, your, your building is beautiful. How do you get your members to pay their dues? He said, we don't have any dues. We don't have dues. We have people who know that they don't think of their possessions as their own. And they know that everything that we've received comes from God. And when God wants to do a work in the world, he could drop bags of money, but I've never seen that happen. Usually, he drops a little bit of conviction in the soul of his people and say, this is a work that I need you to help make happen. And then people start writing checks and say, I... I want to see that happen. And we have generous uh, examples all over us. Last week we told the story about receiving a, a congregation that dwindled down to 13 people and then said, you know what, I want somebody else to have this building and land and gave it away. You know the story of the Kingdom Assignments, how we came to the church in 2003 and we, we preached on Luke chapter 12 and verse 15 which says, not even when a man has much does his life consist of the possessions that he has? Even if you had bazillion dollars, that wouldn't make your life what it is. And then it said, Fear not, little children, your father will give you the kingdom. Go and sell your possessions and give to charity. Sell your possessions, that's Jesus. And we challenged our congregation in 2003 to go sell a possession worth $100 and bring the money back. 200 people of our church said that they would do that in 2003. In reality, they sold much more than $100. We said, let's just do an experiment. Let's go sell something, bring the money, and give it away. And when we took the offering three months later, it wasn't 200 people selling 100, which would have been $20,000. It was $84,000 that the church brought back selling TVs and uh, timeshares and somebody, a Rolex watch that he said I was proud about once I retired and he sold his watch. And something was happening on the inside as we shed some of these stuff that we know we don't need as much as we have. We sold it, we gave it away, we went to some of the social service organizations in town and one of them was Family to 
families, a, a, a com- an organization that works with the poorest of the poor in Boulder and helps them in their needs. And we gave them a check for $20,000. And when she opened it, the director, she said two words. One was holy and the other one I can't say here. But she was so awesome. It was so awesome. And then she began to weep. And she just wept. And when she composed herself, she said, I never would have imagined a check like this from a church like yours. And we just said, ow. You know, she didn't mean to, but it was like, she doesn't think we care about the poor. She doesn't think we care about those outside. She doesn't think we care about those in need outside our own. And it's like, okay, we want to be the church that's on mission outside ourselves, outside ourselves, outside ourselves. And so now we, we talk about those great things. And now we, we take offerings and we give away vests to policemen, as we did a couple of years ago. And now we, we build... Uh, lighthouses in Lebanon, and a school in Sudan, and support seminarians in Haiti. And one of the other things we're doing right now is we're building habitat homes. We've built several over the years, but we're now building habitat homes in our neighborhood for affordable housing around us, and we love doing that. And sometimes we give resources, $40,000 to make it happen, or sometimes we give Time and sweat equity. And I just want to give you some tracks to run on right now today for what you can do next in this message. And I hope not shut it out. First of all, I want you to just examine your giving and just say, am I giving the way God wants me to give generously as unto him, knowing that I'm not ruled by my possessions? Secondly, I, I want you to think about helping build a habitat for humanity home. For one of our members, Elizabeth uh, Benavides has been at Calvary since 2013. You may have already met her on the greeting team or around the church. Uh, she serves here with the Kids Quest care team, life group. Um, you're you're going to be blessed by meeting Elizabeth. Elizabeth was uh, granted uh, permission to, to move into a habitat home uh, a couple years ago. And in 2018, she qualified to be a resident of a Habitat for Humanity home. And it's being built. There have been some delays in design and construction and manpower, but she herself has personally given 225 hours for the building of that home, and uh, it still needs to be done. So our next step as a church is we want to help build that house for Elizabeth and help move her in. And so in the coming days, you're going to have the opportunity to live out what we've been preaching on this morning, and that is to help build this home for Elizabeth. And you don't need construction experience. You, you can step in with any level. You'll be trained. You can do what you want to. But these are the build days that are possible for you. And you can sign up on calvarybible.com. Uh, there's a, the website will be ready to roll this morning, and you can sign up and be a part of that. But we want to help Elizabeth get into her home, right? And we want to make sure that happens. Elizabeth is here today, and we're so thankful for you. This is just sort of another way that we could do it. That, that's our heart, to help make that happen in our community. And um, would you be willing to do that? I want you to think about what, what's my next step to really advancing the mission of the church. That's what it's about. It's, uh, it's 433 where it says, and, and they just kept pressing forward, giving their testimony of the resurrection of Jesus. The mission was uninterrupted by the needs. Okay, I can't think of a better way to end today's message than by thinking about the most generous act that was ever made to us. 
He who is rich for your sakes became, everybody, poor. So that we, through his poverty, might become rich. That's Jesus leaving heaven, going to the cross, giving his life for you. That you, through his broken poverty on the cross, could become rich toward God. The greatest expression of generosity is communion. He died for us. He gave his life. And in a moment, we're going to pass out a piece of bread. And then we're going to pass a cup. We're going to eat and drink together in remembrance of the generous love of God. And if you've heard something today that you just need to do business with God about, I want to encourage you to do that right where you sit. In the quietness as you get ready to take communion, you prepare your heart and say, Lord, is there anything I should learn today about who you are, what you want me to do in my life? All right, let's pray together. We'll pray silently. If you're helping to serve, would you come? Father in heaven, thank you for the privilege of examples in our life that make us think about you. Make us think about the gracious, holy, generous God that you are. You have given in the fullest measure, and I pray that nothing in us will be ruled by anything other than you. We release our wealth to you. We release our possessions. We don't cling to those for our security. We cling to you. And now as we get ready to have this meal of bread and wine, I pray that our hearts will be in tune with you. We will be aligned. There will be no hypocrisy, no faking in us, just transparent. We're saved by your grace. We're saved by your mercy, and we stand with you. Cover us with your grace. May great grace be upon us as we eat this in remembrance of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.